Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. One of the things I wanted to talk about that Paul's going to mention about apostasy on page 81 in your life of the Messiah, sorry, footsteps of the Messiah, is right in the middle, I want, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about apostasy because this is going to open up some, some, some really good understandings of apostasy that Paul mentions it to 2 Corinthians. Before we read that passage right there, if you remember the context for Corinth is that they're highly experiential, they are uh, immature, right? They're caught up in signs and miracles. They're one-upping each other spiritually. Spiritual pride is involved. They're spiritualizing everything. And that right there is a dangerous recipe for apostasy. And this is why the Corinth church is going to get nailed with First and Second Corinth uh, letters from Paul. And he, he understands what's at stake here with them. When a, a church becomes like this, they're susceptible to false teachings, to apostasy. So he, he, he tells them this, this snippet right here that's very important for all of us to understand about apostasy and about all what we're even talking about today. Follow me on this passage. This is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. But I fear, lest by any means, and then he relates what they're doing with what happened in the Garden of Eden. As the serpent beguiled Eve in his craftiness, your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity and the purity that is toward Christ. Let's back up there. This is important what he's trying to say. He's recalling the past event that happened in Genesis. You all know about the temptation. But I want to break this out a little bit further so you can understand the depths of what Paul's trying to get at as far as apostasy is concerned. The serpent is used in this sentence because that is the instrument that Satan used to beguile Eve. Okay? It's called the nakash in Hebrew, the nakash. Now, the nakash, its root is similar to the word in Hebrew, nekashet. Nekashet and nakash have the same Hebrew roots, which means bronze, shining one. Shining one or bronze. Okay, remember the bronze serpent that Moses put on the pole. Okay, it's all interconnected here. Okay? So, Satan uses the nakash, which we now know as a serpent or a snake, but the nakash was very different back then before the fall, before the curse. The nakash seems to have had uh, maybe a quadruped or a, a biped. It, it was not like the serpent we see today that has no le- arms or legs or appendages. It apparently uh, had maybe four, six, two, we don't know. The other thing about the Nakash is it had the ability to speak. The other thing about the Nakash is, notice it says craftiness. That term in Hebrew is neutral. 
It doesn't mean negative. It doesn't mean positive. It depends on how it's being used by the person. So the Nakash, the serpent, the shining one, who had the ability to speak like a parrot does, in that animal, it had craftiness. It was very smart as an animal. You see these animals out here, you know, like a dog or a dolphin, very intelligent creature. And then this had the ability to speak as well, because the vocal cords are what was used by Satan to speak. As Satan possessed the Nakash, he spoke through the Nakash, used the vocal cords to tempt Eve. Okay? This is important. Paul is trying to show you the instrumentality that Satan will use. The shining one. Okay? The Nakash. And then he says, I don't want your minds corrupted, you know, that from the simplicity and purity towards Christ. Okay. One of the things, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, is that their minds, the Eve's and, and particularly Eve, who was beguiled or she was fooled by this. He's trying to say, you guys are in the same boat as Eve was. Because of your immaturity, because of, of your naivety, because you're looking for experience, because you're looking for, for sensationalism, you are set up like Eve is set up or was set up. Okay? So what Satan is going to do is take advantage of Eve's naivety and her integrity. And it's untested integrity. Okay? He's going to take advantage of this. Eve is oblivious to evil. She has no clue about what's coming her way. Paul's point in this wording and phrasing is the same for the Corinth church. You guys have no clue what evil is at your doorstep because of your immaturity. Did you see that? Okay, he's building an argument for apostasy. That if you want to protect yourself against apostasy, you've got to quit uh, acting like you know it all that you've already figured it out, and that that um, you don't want to grow anymore. That's how a lot of Christians feel that they've they've already learned all they're going to learn, and that's that's as far as they want to go. They are set up to be tempted for apostasy. The Corinth church, it, he planted it, and it was three years old by the time he writes First Corinthians. He expected them after three years to be fully mature. The fact is they stayed immature as a baby, and so their babiness is making them naive. I would expect that if I just led somebody to the Lord, they were going to be naive for the very, that's, that's part of the growth. They got to start growing. But we're talking now with believers after 20, 30, 40 years being later. Hey man, no time for naivety. And if you're trying to tell people, how come you don't see this? And they've been a Christian for a long time. I can tell you right now, it's because they haven't grown. It's not, they're naive to the evil in front of them. Like we just talked about, I talked about the Pope, and we talk about this Twitter thing. Other Christians are completely naive to that. Ah, what's a big deal? Ah, it's no big deal. They don't get it. And that's what they don't want to do. It's spiritual laziness. See, the, the experiential people want spirituality fast. They want the shortcuts. But I'm telling you, those of you who have been at this for a long time, it's days, weeks, months, years of building on your Christianity and your knowledge of Scripture. It's not overnight. It's a lot of hours, dude. A lot of it. And that's the only way you can grow. But they want to shortcut 
They don't want to study. So what they do is they shortcut this and they come to you and say, man, I had a dream from Jesus and Jesus told me I was going to do great things. They always do that, right? And it's one-upping you, which is what the Corinth church did. They one-upped each other. I'm better than you because I've had all these experiences, Stuart, and you're sitting there twiddling your thumb saying, well, I read my Bible several hours a day and, and I try to obey and I'm not having those kind of reactions because they're lying to you. Those are not happening. And, and they're trying to one-up you. That's what Corinth was doing. Remember they were saying, I was, I was baptized by this guy and I was baptized by this guy and I can speak in tongues and I can do this. Remember how they're one-upping each other. You always like want to feel like you're Neil Armstrong and one-up them and say, I went to the moon. How do you like that? <laughs> they, they always want to play this one-up you thing. Always they'll do that to you. Okay, so now f- track with this. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis. Because Genesis is going to teach you how to avoid apostasy, and Paul's using this. And we'll come back to this passage right here, okay? Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, or the nakash, was more cunning or crafty than any beast of the field. Do you notice it's referring to the nakash, not Satan? That the nakash is crafty. And it's, it's, it's a neutral term, like I mentioned, and Paul's using that. That this, this animal is very prudent and wise. It's a very smart animal and, and has the ability to speak, obviously, because Satan's going to use the vocal cords. Okay. So obviously Satan is possessing this animal. Okay. Now, here's where I want you to start tapping into what Paul's trying to say. Satan will use creatures or human beings in the church, just like he used in the Kosh with Eve, that are bright and shining. Okay? He's going to use the best-looking models, so to speak, to fool people. They'll talk good. They'll speak good. They're good rhetoric. They don't say anything. They look good most of the time. They speak good on TV. You get where, you get where this is going. It's appealing. They're physically appealing to people. Okay? He possesses them and he uses them because he can't do a frontal attack. He has to, to go through the side door. Okay. And he says, uh, of any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And now, so possession has happened and Satan is speaking through the Nakash. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? There is your first clue about apostasy. Apostasy starts, number one, with doubting. Doubting, okay? Now, notice what he says. He's doubting the reality of the command. Doubting the reality of the word of God or what God said. Okay? That is what apostasy is all about. As I have showed you numerous weeks before this, it's a continual doubt and denial of what God is saying. Okay, so this is where liberal theology comes from. Okay? Liberal theology makes every matter of theology a debate. Did you catch that? You see what he's doing to her. He is debating Eve. 
and making her doubt what God has said. So liberal theology is going to want to debate items that you and I know are black and white. And now it's up for debate all of a sudden. Give me one example now that was black and white five years ago. Now is up for debate. Bingo. You get it. You see what happened? That is the, the serpent working through the nakash. I'm going to put everything God up said for debate. I'm not going to sit there and I'm not going to outright deny it at the, at the start. I'm just going to get to it, you into a debate so I can cause doubt in your mind. Did God really say that? Let's take a look at the scripture because maybe we're not seeing this in context, the liberal guys will say. And maybe Moses didn't write the first five books. And maybe Isaiah didn't write the five books because look at the way the tone is. Look at the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It looks like there's two stories here. and It looks like the guys put them together and they don't understand that's a Hebraism. And so now everything starts to become debatable. Yeah, this second coming thing, you know, this rapture thing, that's debatable. We don't, I don't, we don't even see the difference between the two. And before you know it, they're debating it. Things that are main and plain are starting to become debatable. First sign of apostasy. First sign of apostasy is the doubt and debate that goes on. That's the first attack. Okay? In apostasy. Second, watch. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, free, the fruit of the tree of which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. There's a problem there. Okay? If you look in the record, God directly told Adam what to do. He did not tell Eve. So Eve is getting information secondhand. That's important. He's getting information secondhand. Okay? Why is that a problem? Or, or is it a problem? Some things could adapt. Some things can change. It seems like she added to it, right? Now, now we don't know if she added to it or if Adam added to it and gave her that information. She's repeating back. Because remember, where did she get her information from? Adam. So we don't know in the communication if it's her problem or if it was Adam's because it doesn't come straight from God. That's the nature of apostasy. Someone starts adding or subtracting to the word of God and they're getting information secondhand. Now, here's the deal. In this modern day and age, how would we avoid that? How would you avoid just taking what I say for granted and just saying, well, he said it, the pastor said it, and he wears a tie, so he must know what he's talking about. You better know the scriptures. You better know the source material, not the secondary material, the one communicating to you, but you need to know the source material. Because if you don't know the source, then I can add or subtract in front of you, and you would never know. That's what's going on in modern-day churches, because no one will crack open their Bible. I watched Joel Olsen the other night just to get a laugh, okay? <laughs> Not to be edified by that joy boy. Um, but he was on, the, his smile was as big as Gene Stipe. I mean, he had a smile from here. I think he's had plastic surgery twice. Um, I can't, I, you can, I, no one can smile that big. No one can smile that big. And keep it going. Well, there you go. So I'm listening to this, this guy just to get my kicks. And they start off their sermon, this is my Bible. And they go through this mantra, right? And everybody in there is waving their Bible. 
he set it down and he never came back to it. Never. The whole sermon. And it was story after story after story after story. And I want to say, you just told people this, this is your word and you're not using it. And neither was anyone opening their Bible there either. Bingo. You can't have your best day if you're, you're reading the scriptures, man. Right? The, the biblical thing is to finish well. And good to him is relative to what he's pouring into the word good. So when you, when you say, when you say that, it seems Christian, but he's pouring a different meaning into how to end well or good. Yeah, yeah. Financial prosperity, I'm in a good position, that's exactly where the joy boys go with that because it's word of faith. When Paul says I finish well, how did Paul finish? Prison? Decapitated. I finished the race. I fought the fight. Now that ain't the way Joel Osteen wants to end his life. He wants to end it in his Rolls Royce and in his, his $10 million mansion. And that's a different way of finishing. But see, if you say that and you don't put teeth to it and you don't state what that means, yeah, okay, I want my life to end well. Who wouldn't? But he's not defining what that is. The scriptures will define how that is. And it tells you how to finish the race. And it tells you what that looks like. And uh, Paul's the example of that. So, good point. Okay, so you, you caught this, okay? Watch this. But are the fruit... Of, okay, so you mentioned that. Uh, okay, so here, here we go. Second attack, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You see the movement? Okay. It goes from doubt and debate... And my second attack that I'm going to hit you with is what? Denial. I'm going to flat out now deny the Word of God. I'm going to get you to doubt it, but I'm going to, I'm going to go, come. The second phase, well, I will deny it. I will deny it right off the bat. Boom. And he denies it in, in sense that God says, the, the day you eat of it, you, sure, you shall surely die. He says, that's not going to happen. You guys don't worry about that. Now watch what he does. <clears throat> For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he adds to this and says, look, God's holding out on you. You can experience life at a greater way and God's holding out on you. He's jealous. He doesn't want to give that information of knowing good and evil and he's holding that back. He, he's wanting you to be dependent on him to determine good and evil. You should be able to determine you, the way your life should go on your own. You need autonomy. You see what he implanted? He implanted a thought and a desire into her heart. And what was that desire for? How is, okay, what is this idea of, of, uh, uh, knowing good and evil? That's, okay, so that's, that's where he's, he's saying that if you guys have the ability to determine your own course of life, that you should be ter- determine what's right and wrong for you and not be dependent on him telling you what's right or wrong. That's what he's trying to hold off on you because he knows he knows that when you have autonomy, you're going to be like him. So it's the idea of setting my own course, guiding my own ship. I'm the captain of my own ship, and I will determine right and wrong in my life. Okay, knowing good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay, knowledge of good is to know that which, that things which pertain to life. 
Knowing evil means knowing those things that pertain to death or bring destruction. And the, the Hebrew is not saying head knowledge, that it's experiential knowledge. Revelation knowledge. Revelatory knowledge. That's what God's trying to get across to all of us in His Word. And this is a fundamental understanding about apostasy. God is saying, will you please do what I say? Don't experience it for yourself. I know what evil is, and I know what it can do to you and how it can destroy you. Please trust me on this. And what do we do? I gotta experience this myself. Right? And we go, and we jump in the deep end, and we go experience what evil is, and then we come back with our tail between our legs saying, yeah, that was no good. I'll never do that again. But why can we just didn't take his word? We had to experience the destruction, experience it taken away from me, and we'll never be the same. And yes, it destroys us, and we say, yeah, God's right, but then why did we have to go through that? Well, God's trying to say, don't do it. Just take my word on it. And believe me on revelatory knowledge rather than you going out and experiencing life and destroying yourself. But yet, I can tell you, 60% of the people, when you, you study about knowledge and experience, 60% of people will not take people on their word. They will do it. They have to experience it. So what's the, what's the, the lesson for apostasy so far? Because this is what Paul's trying to lay out. Half-truths. Right? Half-truths will be given to people. And those who want to set their own course and determine right and wrong in their own lives will apostatize. And where does it all stem to? It stems to them wanting experience. It stems to them not wanting to take God at His word, the revelatory knowledge, and not just trusting in that and accepting that and saying, no, no, I'm going to court my, uh, court, uh, chart my own course and I'm going to experience life to the fullest because I think you're holding out on me. And they go do it. So what's the nature of apostasy is they don't want to listen to God's revelatory voice. They would rather hear someone tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. So you're seeing the essence of apostasy right here. And this is why Paul uses this. And obviously, this idea of... uh, when they partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they now have the power to decide for oneself what's in their own best interests. And that doesn't make them like God in any way. That makes them culpable now for what they're doing. And now the curse is coming upon them. And uh, one of the things you have to understand, this is an interesting side note, just as a sidebar. God gave Adam and Eve, and this is before the fall, a thing, uh, what we call the ability of contrary choice. Contrary choice. And this is important to understand. Adam and Eve had the ability to choose against their nature. Does that make sense? Okay, but what's their nature? Untested holiness. They're not sinful. It's untested holiness. They have not sinned. Okay, They don't possess a sin nature at this point in time. It's untested holiness. Therefore, that's their nature. Yet they choose contrary to their very nature. And they choose to do evil. That's an important point. Now, the idea of, of having that ability is still with you today. 
I want you to work that out the opposite in theology, though. You still have the ability of contrary choice against your nature. Even though I have a sin nature. Bingo! We've just eliminated a certain theology. If the scriptures are telling me that they had, they were given the ability of contrary choice, that means humans still have the ability of contrary choice. That they can choose against their nature. That they're not bound, like Luther wrote, bondage of the will. They can only choose to do evil. He missed this one. Because of contrary choice. You can choose against your nature for the good, even though you possess a sin nature. That has never been taken away from human beings. It was, it, it, it was a gift given to them. And this is what only explains why untested holiness would choose to do evil when they don't have a sin nature. It's the only thing that explains that. And still is the only thing that explains when a sinful person accepts by faith Jesus Christ. It works both ways. Hence, even a believer has the ability of contrary choice. What are you saying? Well, now a believer has two natures. And he still has the ability to choose against even the new nature. And can choose to apostatize. And that doesn't make him an unbeliever. It makes him have the ability of contrary choice to do evil, to experience evil, or to experience bad theology. And, of course, with the, uh, apostates will lose... Uh, uh, rewards, temporary blessings, temporal blessings, and eternal rewards. But they still can choose against their nature. See, in other theologies, they say you can't choose against your nature. So you have a new nature. They say you'll never apostatize. Really? Then what are all the warnings in here for? I just want to know. Why are there so many warnings in the New Testament about apostatizing? And this is a big deal. Why is Paul warning the Corinth church about apostasy if they can't apostatize? If they couldn't do it, then why give them the warnings? It's just, you're fruitless telling them that. But it's showing you something they still possess contrary choice and go against their nature and choose evil or good. Okay. So that's, that's the nature of it. So go back to your, 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 your page, your page 81, okay? Follow what, what Paul comes and says. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach. So they're always going to use Jesus as their foundation, but it's always a counterfeit Jesus. Or if ye receive another spirit, which ye did not receive, or another gospel, which ye did not receive, ye do well to bear with him. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, fashioning themselves into the apostles of Christ. Remember the nakash. And no marvel, or no wonder, for even Satan fashions himself into an angel of light, like the bronze serpent, the Nakash. It is no great thing, therefore, if his ministers also fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Bingo. They will come at you just like Satan used the Nakash. Doubt, denial, adding half-truths. Making you apostles, giving you desires that you never had before. That I want this experience, and I want this. I want Jesus to talk to me. And it will come with a different Jesus, and a different spirit, and a different gospel. 
that being the case, there's the nature of apostasy. Please turn then to page 88. 88, and we'll finish there. Page 88. So that's the nature. Okay, so how do I handle apostasy? If I see it, I'm seeing other people do it, well, the Scripture gives you three ways to handle it. Okay? Okay, so what do I do on page 88 at the very top in 2 John 7-11? through How do I handle apostasy outside the church? That's what 2 John's about. For many deceivers have are gone uh, forth into the world, even they that confess not that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Look to yourselves uh, that ye lose not the things which we have uh, wrought, but that ye receive a full reward. Whosoever goes on onward and abides not in the teachings of Christ has not God. He that abides in the teaching, the same as both the Father and the Son. Okay, here's the crux of the matter. If anyone comes unto you and brings not this teaching, which basically denies Orthodox Christianity, receive him not into your house and give him no greeting, for he that gives him a greeting partakes in his evil works. That's how you handle apostasy on the outside. Don't even bring them into your house. Don't even bring them in the doorstep. Don't even say, God bless you. Did you catch that one? And what do we do? I see Christians after Christians inviting the Mormons into their house, inviting the Jehovah Witnesses in their house, and sitting down and having a picnic with them. He just told you, you keep them outside your house. You don't bring them in. Why would he worry about them bringing, coming into your house? What did we just study in Genesis? You'll start debating. Then they'll start denying. And it'll cause you to doubt and debate. And before you know it, you're goofed up. Because if you don't have your theology straight, they'll wrap you into a theological pretzel, just like the Nakash did with Eve. She was gone. She got smoked by the serpent, right? And Paul makes this point in second, sorry, first Timothy, it was Eve who was deceived, not Adam. Adam knew full well what was going on. So, so what the scripture is trying to tell you is not that you can't deal with a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, because I do, but I don't bring them in the house. And primarily because I'm not giving them a platform. I'm going to keep them off my turf, so to speak, and I'm going to put them on, uh, on, in neutral grounds, and I'll debate with them on neutral ground. But if I bring them into my house, and let's pretend I don't know the Bible very well. And I bring them into my house, and my wife is there, and my kids are watching this thing go on, and they're smoking me, theology-wise. I look like an idiot. I lose credibility among my family members because they're smoking me. And that's why I would say, unless you know the Scriptures very well, then you can deal with them, but deal with them on neutral grounds. But do not bring them in your house because you'll embarrass yourself. And then you lose credibility as a witness in front of the people because they it, they know their memorization. That's what they're practicing. They do because they don't know, and they're like, oh, 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 and they're, lo- they're left looking dumb, and and they know better. They don't know how to answer because they never studied the scriptures very well. And these people, when and the cults, they're, they practice going out and what they're saying, and you have to be smart enough to get them off track. And then once you get them off track, you got them. They're easy. But but you have to know your theology first, and then you got to know theirs. And if you're not ready to tangle with them, then don't do it. But here's the point. You extend this then to the church. A church is not to bring unbelievers behind a pulpit. You are not to give a platform to unbelievers in your pulpit. 
And I see many, many churches give up their pulpit or give them platform for unbelievers to speak to their congregation. That's insane. That's ludicrous. That's a violation of this. Yeah, he does that. He brings in like the mayor of Jerusalem or whatever, and he's not even saved. Glenn Beck, he brings Glenn Beck, all that stuff, and, and uh, Glenn Beck's, you know, put himself out there to be invited to all these churches. You are not to give those guys a platform. I don't care if it's a simulcast, a telecast, you are not to have anyone who rejects Christ giving an aud- uh, a platform to an audience of Christians. That's never happened. And yet I see it over and over and over again, this violation right here. Okay, so that's how to handle them on the outside. We don't give them platforms. How do we have them in the church? Next passage, Galatians 1, 8 through 9. But though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema. Anathema is a term, a church term. It could be condemned to hell, but it also means to put them outside the church. As we have said before, so I say to you again, if anyone preaches unto you any other gospel other than what you have received, let him be anathema. So this is basically when you have someone in your church that's an apostate, you kick them out. You excommunicate them. They are to be removed. They are not to be allowed into Bible studies and allowed to go to church when they're apostates. You don't let them float around. You kick them out. So that's how to handle on the inside. Okay, third problem What do we do when the leadership is apostate? Scriptures answer this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, right there below. But do not be, do not unequally yoke yourself with unbelievers. For what fellowship has, have righteousness and iniquity? So that's number one, fellowship, he mentions fellowship. Or what communion has light with darkness? That's number two. And what a concord or agreement, that's number three, has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what portion or part, in number four, has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement, that's number five, has a temple of God with idols? The temple of God being the body uh, which holds the Holy Spirit. For we are the temple of the living God, even as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so here's the admonition. Wherefore, come ye out... From among them, number one. Number two, and be ye separated. Separate. That's number two, says the Lord. And three, touch no unclean thing. That's what you do. If your church leadership is apostate, you separate from them. Because you can't dislodge them out of that, so your only choice is not to stay, it's to leave. So the scripture is very clear how to handle apostates, Outside, inside the church, and leadership of the church. So if these people are in a church that's apostate, their job is to leave that church. And then he promises three promises. And I will be with you, a father, and you should be one of my, uh, be to me my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Having therefore these promises, beloved, let us uh, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting wholeness and the fear of God. That passage is typically used for marriage, but that's not the context. That context here has to do with apostasy and church worship. That's the whole context of that. And so there's your ways of handling it. It's in the church, excommunicate them. Outside, I don't give them a platform. In the church, leadership, I leave the church. That's simple. 
So everything has been prepared for you and I to understand how to deal with this world that we're in as far as apostasy. Down to the detail. You know why? Because God knew it was going to happen, and it's, it's happening now. And it's at a rapid pace, and you've got to know how to handle it, because you're going to start seeing people that were with you start falling by the wayside. And you're not going to know what to do with them. And they're going to be family members. They're going to be friends. They're going to be, hey, man, that guy was in my Bible study. What happened? Yeah, he got goofed up. He started listening to Benny Hinn and get all crazy. And you're going to say, yeah, what happened to him, man? Okay, when that happens, you must understand something was not right in the person to begin with. What do you mean? Was he not a believer? I'm not, no, 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 no. Don't even go there. We're saying that they never took the time to really study. They never took the time to mature and grow in the Lord. And that's why they fell into apostasy. That's the reason. It's a lack of discipleship. And that's where you leave it at. And so it's a big problem, and we're seeing it all around. And because people don't know their Bible, they're just as naive as Eve is dealing with the Nakash. She didn't know how to deal with them. And, and you see right there that... It's not a mystery that doubt gets into their minds. The mystery, it's not a mystery. What the uncovering is, that person was not as mature as you thought they were. They didn't have their theology as down as they thought. And I can tell you right now, as a pastor, there's a whole host of them out here in Kern County that are uneducated. And I'm not talking about formal education, because a lot of them have went to seminary. I'm talking they simply don't know the scriptures. They have went, they have their certificate on their wall, and it is as useless uh, as a bump on a pickle. Okay, let's do this. Take a break, and we'll get into Life of the Messiah. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is the Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.